0: Matthew, we'll find ourselves this morning in Matthew chapter 13. And as we look at Matthew chapter 13, there's definitely some, some things that we need to glean. First off, as we take a look at this, we begin what's known, and uh, maybe your Bible has this heading, the kingdom parables. Remember I told you in chapter 12, Jesus says, as the people who are following Him turn and look at their spiritual leaders of the day... They look at the scribes and the Pharisees and they say, Can't this be the Son of David? Is this the Messiah? And they look at those people and as a nation at that moment, they reject Him. They say, No, 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 this can't be the Messiah. This is the devil. This is Satan incarnate. This is one sent to to lead you away from what God wants to do. It's interesting because way back in the Old Testament... God gave the nation the ability to discover for themselves, to understand whether or not a prophet was of God or not of God. Well, the first thing they said is if that prophet comes and he speaks a word and it doesn't come to pass, that he's not. He's not of the Lord. Don't fear him, don't be afraid of him, forget about it. He also said if he speaks a thing and it comes to pass, and then as it comes to pass, when it comes... If he tries to lead you away from God, don't listen to him, don't fear him, stay away from him, he's a false prophet. But none of those things are things that Jesus was guilty of. Remember the problem that they had with Jesus was that he would not follow the 101 rules written down by the scribes and the Pharisees on how to be a righteous and holy person. They had put together their list of requirements, and Jesus didn't match their list of requirements. And by the way, if Jesus continues to teach like he's teaching, nobody's going to buy their book. Nobody's going to follow their direction. They're going to ultimately, we'll see later on in scripture, they realize we're going to lose our positions of power if this keeps up. And the high priest in that day, his name is Caiaphas, the high priest in that day says, Don't you people understand that it is expedient? For one man to die for all the people. Interesting that he would say that. Because that's exactly what Jesus had come to do. And what he planned to do. When we come to chapter 13 after that has occurred. All of a sudden the way that Jesus taught changes. Up until this time he had spoken to them plainly. And he had taught like no one they had ever heard. You see, when the rabbis would teach in these days, they would come and they would bring their teachings and perhaps they would use stories or illustrations like Jesus is going to use, but they would never stand with the authority to tell them in the place of God what the Scripture meant. They would quote other rabbis. They would say, well, Rabbi such and such says... And they would lay it out. Or they would quote another rabbi. But they would never stand in the place of God to tell the people what the word meant. Until Jesus. Jesus stood in the place of God. He told the people what the word meant. And the people marveled. Don't you remember? The people marveled. They said, with with what authority does he teach? I mean, he's telling us what the word of God says. How can he do that? Because he is God the word. Revelation chapter 19 defines him as such. God the word. The word of God in the flesh. Jesus Christ. God in the flesh. Period. No argument. That's who he is. And that's why he could teach in that way. That's why he could bring that to him. And so the people are blown away by the method that he uses when he teaches. But now in chapter 13, it's going to change. And it changes for a purpose. So take a look at chapter 13, verse 1. It says, on the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. Whenever we read the word, is it, is it ever okay for us to go so fast that we miss the simple things? I don't think it is. It says on the same day. On what same day? Well, let's back up and take a look. It says in in chapter 12, uh, verse 47, Then one said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside, and they desire to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother... Is my sister, is my mother. On the same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the sea. So Jesus is sitting in the house, in Capernaum, maybe Peter's house or a place that was their main base of operations there in Capernaum. Jesus is in the house, someone comes in the house to him on that same day and they say, Hey, your mom and your brothers want to see you. Now this creates a problem for for some uh, Catholic Theologians. So, this is what they say. He's not really saying Jesus and or Mary and her brothers and, and sisters are looking for Jesus. What, what, it, what the word really means is cousin. Let me fix that for you. No, it's not. I don't care how you dance around it, it's brother. Jesus had brothers. We know two of them, James and Jude. We read their books. Well, they don't come to faith until the resurrection. At this time, they're looking for Jesus because they think he's gone crazy. And they want to see him, they want to get their brother and know like, what is wrong with you? I've been walking around healing people and doing all this crazy stuff and talking like you're God. Hey, I remember when you were in diapers. These are his brothers. His brothers. Well, as they as they come to him, Jesus says, Listen, here is the only relationship. That matters. Why I love that new song Fritz did this morning. There's only one name that matters. That's the name of Jesus. And there's only one relationship that matters, and those are the ones, he said, who do the will of my father. The ones who do the will of my father, they're my brother and sister and mother. They're my family. Literally. He's talking about who believers are. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, in those days, they will say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus will say, depart from me, you accursed, into everlasting darkness. Why? I never knew you. We do a disservice the church in, in, the, in history has done a disservice. We've done it. Back in the 1980s, uh, Gallup went out and did a poll. And they asked people, how many people believe in Jesus? And 50 million said they did. I believe in Jesus. 1990, another guy went out and he went to those exact same people. Got the list from Gallup. And he went to them and he asked them very Important questions that the word says, speaking of who Jesus is and what faith in Christ really means. And you know what he discovered? Only one in ten were real believers. Because we'll say to people, do you believe? And what do people hear? Do I believe Jesus existed? Sure, I believe Jesus existed. There's more evidence for the existence of Jesus than George Washington of course we believe he exists. Are you committed to Jesus? Oh, that's a different question altogether, isn't it? Of course I'm a Christian. I come, I'm in the United States. I was born in America. You know, God, apple pie and Chevrolet. I can't stand Chevrolet. <laughs> Sorry. Currently it's God, apple pie and Dodge, but That could change if my dodge breaks. The point being, we we have this concept, this idea. Listen, when Jesus was asked the question, hey, your family's out here looking for you, he said, This is who my family really is. And on that same day, he gave this teaching we're going to study. On that same day, he said, You want to know how to tell? You want to know how to be able to recognize someone who is, who is part of my family, who's part of the body of Christ, who's part of the, the kingdom? So it says, in that same day he walked out of the house, and he sat by the sea, and great multitudes were gathered together to him. Great multitudes. That means lots of people. Lots and lots of people. For example, just multitudes... Were 5,000 that he fed. Now he's saying great multitudes. So some number beyond that is following him. Every time Jesus came out of his door, people were there. People wanted healing. People wanted to hear what he had to say. People wanted to to understand what he was all about. And so he comes out and the, the throngs come. Great multitudes gather around him. So he got into a boat and he sat And the whole multitude stood on the shore. In the Middle East, this is the the way that teaching is done. We follow a a Greek mindset here in the United States. So that means the teacher stands and the students sit. In those days, in the Middle Eastern culture, the teacher sat and the students stood. Why? It's harder to fall asleep when you're standing up. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. It's just harder. So... He sat down on the on this boat and the people are gathered out before him there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. If you have a chance to go to Israel, you can see exactly how this occurs. You sit down and you can just see all around you. Not only can you see you're not necessarily in the city proper, but you're also there on the hills, rolling hillsides where the sowers go out to sow. And so there's Jesus sitting on His boat and the people are gathered around. They have the opportunity to look to the left and the right and see all the things Jesus is going to be talking about. On the same day when He said, here's how you're going to know who my family is, those who do the will of the Father, He began to speak many things to them in parables. saying, The word parable is a transliteration. That means the word parable is really a Greek word. Para bolus. Para means alongside. and Bolus is to cast. To cast alongside. It means to take an illustration and use something common that everyone can understand and lie it beside or cast it beside a spiritual truth. Now Jesus is going to teach in parables. He's going to, he's going to teach in parables. And he says, behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell by the wayside the birds came and devoured them. Some fell on stony places where they did not have much earth. And they immediately sprang up because they had no depth. But when the sun was up, they were scorched. And because they had no root, they withered away. And some fell among the thorns. And the thorns sprang up and choked them. But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop. Some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. And then he says what every rabbi said when he taught. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, the disciples are are kind of blown away. This is new. Jesus has never talked like this before. He's He's never spoken in parables. So the disciples came to him and they said, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered and said, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and to him who has, and he will have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Listen, Jesus said, let him who has ears to hear, hear what the Spirit is saying. In the Greek, there are two words uh, that we can understand for hearing. The concept that most of you understand, if you're parents. You know your children have two different kinds of ways of hearing you, right? You speak to them and their eyes are glassed over and they hear the sound coming out of your mouth, but there's no comprehension whatsoever to what you're saying. There's also the kind of hearing that hears, receives, and understands. Jesus, when he talks about let him who has ears hear, he's talking about if you want to hear, you can hear. Your ears will be open to you. But your heart is hard. Your eyes are shut. Your ears are closed. You're not going to hear. At this moment, the people are, the, the leaders of the nation of Israel are seeking to kill him. On that same day. They're seeking to kill him. He begins to speak in parables. Listen, if you don't want to know the truth, you're not going to hear the truth. If you don't believe, you won't understand. Your eyes will not be opened. Your ears are closed. And it just sounds like a neat story. But if you believe, to you it's been given to understand the things of the kingdom. And then he says, to him who has, to him who has what? Ears to hear. To him who has ears to hear, It will be given for whoever has ears to hear to him more will be given understanding and he will have an abundance. But he who does not have ears to hear even what he has will be taken away. See, that's the the very example he gives in the parable of the sower. Some of the seed fell where? On the wayside. Some of the seed fell on the wayside. The birds come and snatched it up. They had nothing. Nothing. They had nothing. They, they didn't have that understanding, that ability to receive it. Therefore, in verse 13, he says, I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now that's the, using the words. Hear, they're hearing the words that are coming out of my mouth, but there's no desire to know, to understand. There's just the hearing of the sound. But not the comprehension, not the understanding of what he has to share. There's three reasons Jesus is laying out in this section that he speaks to them in parables. One, the first reason is to reveal truth to the believer. To reveal the truth of the kingdom to the believer, to those who want to hear, to those who have a desire to understand. They're going to perceive, they're going to see. The second thing is to conceal truth to the unbeliever. To the one who doesn't want to hear, to the one who is uninterested in what God has to say, he won't hear. The third reason is to fulfill prophecy. He says in Isaiah 6, He says, Therefore, I speak to them in prophecies. And in them, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled in verse 14, which says, Hearing you will hear, but not understand. Seeing you will see, but not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears. Lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. The prophecy of Isaiah is from Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 says that, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. You remember that scripture? It's where Isaiah stands before God. The first five chapters of Isaiah, Isaiah has said, woe to everybody else. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you too. But in chapter 6, Isaiah says, woe to me. Why? Because he comes face to face with a pure, holy, righteous God. In the year that King Uzziah died... Until that time, all the people's eyes were on King Uzziah. He's a holy, righteous, good man. Good king. Wants to follow the Lord, and people are following him. But in the year that King Uzziah died, their eyes come off of him, and Isaiah sees the Lord. He sees the Lord, high and lifted up. He says, Woe to me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And the Lord sends an angel who grabs from the altar... A a coal from the altar. And he comes over and he touches the lips of Isaiah. And he says, your sins have been purged from you. And then the Lord speaks just like this. Who shall we send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. Send me. Then the Lord says, this scripture. I'm going to send you. But hearing, they won't hear. Seeing, they won't see. Because the eyes of the people are shut and their hearts have grown dull. That word dull literally means hard. It's like the their heart has a hard shell around it. It can't penetrate. Literally what the Lord is saying is my people have already made choices and rejected the truth that I've come to give. And in their unbelief, they can't see. They won't hear. And the exact same thing is occurring here in Matthew chapter 13. Their hearts have grown hard. They can't hear. They can't see. They can't receive. They're not able to, to do the things or, or or understand the things that God wants them. They can't hear with their ears because their hearts are hardened. They don't want to receive from the Lord. You ever met people like that? People like that still exist. They're still here. They're still here. The word of God cannot penetrate. They hear the same thing everybody else does, but it's just noise in the ear. You know, it sounds like Charlie Brown and his teacher. Right? That's how it is. They hear the sound, but it doesn't penetrate the heart. If it doesn't penetrate the heart, it's pretty simple what God says. They're unbelieving, They're not believers. They won't grasp the truth of the parables. And so he lays out this parable for them. And he tells us, he who has ears to hear. If you have ears to hear, the truth of what God has to say is going to come through. The truth of what God wants to do is going to be seen. He says in verse 16, But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. And the disciples, he's saying, you guys are for real. You guys are real because you want to know the truth. You know, every once in a while, I get a phone call from a guy who just wants to argue. You ever had a phone call like that? You know, the the last time it happened, the phone rings. I swear this guy called me when I was in California, too. I recognize the voice. I'm like, I think I remember this conversation. See, what he does is he sits at home and he looks through all the web pages of different churches, especially if a web page comes up. And then he looks through their statement of faith. And in their statement of faith, they believe in the Trinity. He calls. He calls because he's a Jehovah's Witness who does not believe in the Trinity. And so he calls to argue. Does he call because he wants to know the truth? No, last time he called me when I was in California, he called and we got in this exact same discussion. And I talked to him for two hours. And you know what happened at the end of two hours? He's still arguing. Now, I had resolved in my heart that though I want to reach through the phone and grab him by the throat and shake him, I can't do that. Though those are some of the things that go through your mind, finally I'm thinking, you know, I just hang up, I'm, I'm done and you know what happens before that? Each time, both times, happened twice. Before that, he usually calls me an idiot and hangs up. The second time he called me, when I, probably my first week that I was here, and I should have known because I thought, man, that voice sounds familiar. You know, he, he always calls like, oh, I, I have a few questions. Do you have time? Well, I happen to be busy at that moment, but I said, well, why don't you call me on such and such a day? We'll, sit, we'll talk. Okay, so he calls me. As soon as we begin the conversation, I'm like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. I'm like, do you remember me? We've talked before. Oh, no, no, it's not me. Oh, no, I would not miss a guy like you. And we talked again for two hours. At the end of two hours, you know what he did? He called me an idiot and hung up again. (laughs) You're an idiot and hangs up. There's just no joy in those kind of conversations. And I talked to a friend of mine. His name's Pastor Bob. And he had also talked to this particular guy. And he begins his conversation with him out of Proverbs. And Proverbs says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he seem wise in his own eyes. That's how he begins his conversation with him. Why? The guy says, are you calling me a fool? No, it goes back to this verse. You don't have ears to hear. Because I'm telling you, but you're not interested in the truth. You're only interested in the fight. You don't care to hear. You don't care to receive. So it's a waste of time. And that's what Jesus is saying here. He's bringing these parables. Those who don't want to hear, they're not going to spend the time. They don't want to know... It just goes in one ear, out the other. But those who want to hear, well, they're going to grab it. And they're going to be gravitated toward it. And they want to know, what is it that God is telling us? What is it that God is laying out for us? He says in verse 17, listen, for assuredly I say to you, many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see. Think about all the prophets who spoke about the Messiah who would have loved to have seen him. Think about them. Think about Jeremiah. Think about Isaiah. Think about Daniel. Think about the the men to whom God gave these incredible prophecies who desired to understand and to know, but it wasn't theirs to see. He goes on to say, and many desired to hear, but, but were not able to hear. It wasn't their time. It wasn't time for the Messiah to come. But Jesus said, blessed are you because you have eyes to see and you have ears to hear. And here I am. Here I am to tell you the truth. Here I am to give you the facts, the reality. And he's giving us in this, in this section, in just this small piece of, of scripture, we're only going go to go to verse 24 today. He gives to us the keys to understand not only who is and who is not part of the kingdom of God, but the key to every other parable. The key to every other parable he gives us. He lets us know. He he lays out for us. He says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. In Mark 4.13, this is what Jesus said. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then can you understand all the parables? And Mark 4.13, 4.13, Jesus said, this parable is the key to every other parable. If we're going to understand the other things that Jesus taught, and we're not going to get off track, and we're not going to run down some wild tangent when we talk about these parables, then we're going to hold to the truth that Jesus told us. He's going to tell us what he meant. And there he is, picture, sitting in the boat, the multitudes around him. He's taught about it. Now the disciples ask him, he's still there. The multitudes are still there. They're still going to hear what it is that he has to say. They're going to hear the explanation that he's going to give. He says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. Jesus is going to teach many parables, but he will only explain two. And this one God bless you, is the key. This one is the key to all the others. So he says, therefore, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, and the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart, this is he who received the seed by the wayside. He begins to lay out for us a few keys. What are the keys? He's talking about people. When he says the sower went out to sow, the seed that he's talking about is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. The seed is sown the Word of God. He lays out for us in, in verse 24, he's going to tell us that the sower is the Son of Man. It's God who sows the Word into men's hearts. And the Word that Scripture declares to us, Always accomplishes what it was sent to do. The word is going to be heard and in some way received. The question then after, at that point is, what kind of soil is the man? What kind of soil is the woman? He's going to define for us in the parable of the sower, those who are the true believers. Those whose faith is in almighty true God. He tells us, and we can argue about it, but this is what it says. Anyone who hears, listen to what he says, anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, remember what I told you about hearing, they heard the sound, they don't care. The word is still there the word remember we 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 talk sometimes about we are a, a seed ministry it means we minister the seed the 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 word of god it goes out and some come along Paul said another I planted another waters and another tens these things come along but the lord gives the increase right but here's what jesus said if you have a hard heart and you're only hearing the sound but you don't have any desire to understand you don't care at all the enemy is going to take the seed out of your life. So that seed that you planted, Satan will take. You need to understand that. Sometimes we, we try to talk to people that are that way. They're that well-trodden path, the wayside, the wayside, the way that they would sow seeds, and not necessarily like us today, no fencing, no, no portioned-off fields. That they would go out and they would find a place and they would scatter the seed. They would tend the ground. They would scatter the seed. And between the the fields would be the wayside, the trodden paths, the paths that would take you to the different fields. And as you would scatter the seed, naturally some seed was going to land there. Some seed is going to be on that hard ground. And as soon as it hits that hard ground, they hear it, no desire to understand it, The scripture declares the enemy takes it away. Satan is busy about making sure that the word of God does not stay in the life of someone that has a hard heart. Why? Because it is the word of God that does that work, softening the heart, and preparing the soil to receive the truth. It's the word of God. And as soon as that seed lands. He declares the wicked one comes and snatches it away. He picks it off. He takes it. He runs with it. He closes it off. This is he who received the seed by the wayside. This is the first type of soil. Hard soil hearted the hardened ground the well-trodden path listen folks this is why it is imperative that you realize you know my great fear for kids who grow up in the church is they hear the word all the time they go to a christian school they hear the word every day and every time you say no i don't really care what this says your heart gets harder until you can sit in church and it doesn't find a place to stay. And while you're there and, you, and you, you've come, you're here, but the enemy swoops in and he snatches away that seed. And all you hear is a my sound coming out, but you don't comprehend or care to understand. And you can live your life here and never know him you can live your life coming to church and that seed never penetrating because the enemy is so busy, so quick to snatch it up. That's why it's so vital to understand that the key that Jesus lays out for us is having the desire to know, to understand. Don't just go through the motions. The more we tell God, I don't care what you have to say, the less we're able to hear what he says. Until one day, we don't hear it at all. The soil of the hard hearted, the seed can't penetrate. And he's not part of the kingdom. He could be here today, but his heart's been hardened. The first type of soil that the Lord speaks of. He goes on in verse one, he says, but he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, but he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The second soil, the second type of heart is the the shallow heart, the heart that that has the hardness, the stony ground underneath. It's got a little bit of soil on top. And when the seed lands there, because of the warmth of the sun and the no depth of soil, the, the seed is able to go to fruit quicker than all the others. The problem is, because it has no root, it cannot endure. And the same thing that will cause others to grow will cause this seed to quit. To give up. To walk away. In the first heart, in the hard-hearted heart, we see the attitude of the one receiving the seed being an attitude of indifference. Indifference. Indifference, don't care. I hear, but I don't care. In this second example, we see the attitude of the heart being an attitude of immaturity. We have emotion without devotion. Immediately they hear the word and they sprout up and they're excited. And there's nothing wrong with that. But immediately as they sprout up and as they're excited, we have a lot of emotion. And sometimes preachers can be guilty of teaching through a section of the scripture and then telling that, that poignant, sad story that tugs at your heartstrings and encourages an emotional response because of the words of the story rather than because of the Word of God. And there's an emotional response and there's this quick flash and an excited life that desires to to do things of the Lord. But as soon as the sun comes up... Listen, don't miss the point... The Lord is saying, as sure as the sun rises, there will be tribulation and persecution. Do you understand that? As sure as the sun comes up. Scripture lays it out like this. Don't be blown away by the fact that these fiery trials have, have come upon you. Don't be surprised as though some strange thing is happening. Nothing strange is happening. It's as simple as the sun coming up in the morning. Jesus said, they hate me, they hate you. There's going to be persecution. As the sun comes up and as that tribulation comes, it shrivels up the plant. Listen, here's here's the problem with that plant. Here's the problem with what's going on within them. They have an initial enthusiasm. They're, They're... just stoked about what they've heard and about what's going on. But then they have insufficient endurance. It's easy to quit and quitting is a habit and habits are hard to break. They have insufficient endurance because they have inadequate expectations what's the inadequate expectation that now that i gave my life to jesus christ it's all going to come together that wife that left me she's going to come back the family that's all messed up they're going to it's all going to come back together all the things that have ever been wrong are going to be made right they have this inadequate expectation and when the tribulation and the persecution comes that causes the other seed to grow it causes them to quit because I came in order that my, my wife would return. I came so that my, my problems in my life would all be solved. And I discovered as soon as I came to Jesus, it got worse. Well, don't be surprised. It's supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be that way. We do a disservice when we tug on the emotional heartstrings and someone comes because of an emotional response, but they have no depth of root, no depth of understanding God's Word and realizing in God's Word that it is in the furnace of affliction God's people grow. It's in the furnace of affliction. That we're not supposed to despise those trials that come into our life. Understanding that those trials produce in us endurance. Endurance. And you have need of endurance. We have emotion without devotion. We have a a, a heart that receives quickly, flames up, and burns out. Ever seen it? Listen. Jesus said... That's not my mother, brother, sister. It's not family. It's not family. Because it's, it's not real. And the test of reality is endurance. When we, we we study the scripture, we know the scripture declares very simply. How do we come to faith? By believing. Believe is a very simple word in the English, very complex word in the Greek. It intimates that in that belief, it is a lasting, trusting event that occurs in your life. Not an intellectual assent that says it exists, but an attitude wherein I place my weight into. The simplest explanation is a chair. Do you believe in a chair? Well, I believe in a chair. Does that mean you believe that the chair exists? How do I know that you trust in the chair? You sat in it. If you didn't trust in a chair, you're standing in the back. Rusty does not trust in a chair. (laughs) That's how I know. If he trusted, he'd sit in a chair. But he doesn't trust in a chair. The idea is the same when we talk about belief. When we put our belief, when we believe in Jesus Christ, you put your weight into. And that is a lasting, listen to this word, commitment. Intellectual assent without commitment is emotion without devotion. It won't last. It'll burn out. It'll burn out in a flash. It'll be gone. He goes on to tell us about the third type of heart. We see in the first heart, it was hard-hearted. Why? Because it had indifference. didn't care. The second heart was shallow because it was immature. It had not developed. It didn't have... The root of understanding that it needed to have. And then we come to the third heart. The third heart to me is the scariest heart of all of them. Third heart scares me to death. Every time I read this section, the third heart scares me. He says, now he who received the seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world And the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. The third heart we see is the crowded heart. The crowded heart, the distracted heart. The heart that is indecisive. It's not able to make a complete decision. It's not able to make a total commitment. Why? Because it says the cares. And the word for cares literally means that which pulls or distracts. The cares of this world. Anybody ever felt pulled or distracted by the things of the world? Man, if you say no, we have a bigger problem. Because lying is an issue too. Man, when I read, when I look at this. Man, this, this can be me. The cares of this world, that which pulls or distracts the indecisive heart. What's the problem with the indecisive heart? The first problem we see with the indecisive heart or the crowded heart is a problem of priority. What are your Priorities. And while you're thinking about that, I want to just share what what, what the Lord lays out for us in first John chapter two verse fifteen, which is another one of the verses that I love but that worry me. It says in first John two fifteen, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now before we try to do mental gymnastics on how that doesn't apply to us, the scripture says, literally, when he says, do not love the world, in the Greek he's saying, stop loving the world and the things of the world. For if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Jesus said a man will either love God Or love the world. He did not say a man could love them both. Ever. He did not say that it was possible to love God and love the world. He said you will either love God, hate the world, or love the world and hate God. That phrase for hate is a little different than our English phrase. It can mean anything that is less. Any love less. God says, I want what? Most second priority, third priority. I can be somewhere down the list. No, He says, I must be first. The problem of the indecisive heart or the crowded heart or the heart that is having the fruitfulness in his life choked out first is a, is a problem of priority. What's the priority? There's a million things in our lives that can, that can affect us. Listen, I'm going to tell you right now, you and I, I believe, have a more difficult walk with Christ and an opportunity to, to trust the Lord than anywhere else on the planet. I don't care you go to Somalia, you go to India where people are being killed for their faith, you go to Africa where Christians are being wiped out. Why? Because in persecution, the church grows. Listen, the United States is not the highest concentration of Christians in the world. Do you understand that? Communist China has more. It's not us. Why? Man, we got a lot of stuff. We got a lot of stuff. When you take the average, the average annual income... At about 50 bucks a year. When the Bible talks about the rich, who do you think it's talking about? And we might say, well, you know, I'm nowhere near as rich as that guy over there. I only have two cars and six TVs, and, and I got a house that I just turn a switch and heat comes on. Do you know how few people in the world have that? Oh, come on, it can't mean me, my my truck's all broken down and the door don't even open right anymore and the windshield's cracked. doesn't matter. Listen, the Lord declares for us in 1 Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I think this is pertinent for us, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. For, For those of us who live in the United States, where I think it's more difficult... Where I think we have a harder time because it's subtle. The enemy is subtle. When the enemy is subtle, it's hard. He joins the church. He messes with our noodle. He's he's in our minds. He's in our head. Listen, this is what Paul said to Timothy. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty. That means not to be proud. Nor to trust in uncertain riches but in the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but when the balance in my checkbook has a plus sign in front of it, I'm a lot happier. But you see, Paul said to Timothy, you tell them not to be filled with pride because of all they have. And second, tell them not to trust in the riches. He called them uncertain riches. Now we understand that the riches are uncertain, right? At least intellectually. We understand that tomorrow we could wake up and the bank could say, because this happened before in history, yeah, thanks for the donation, but there's no money here. It's all gone. That's happened before, hasn't it? Sure it has. What do we learn from history? History just happens once? Never repeats itself? Oh no, history repeats itself all the time, doesn't it? So the Lord said, don't trust in your riches. Boy, that's so easy to do though. Isn't it so easy to do? I mean, I, I, I do it. When my child is sick, do I have to go on my knees before Almighty God and pray, Lord, I need you to heal. I need you to work in my child's life. I need you to touch him. Or do I go to the checkbook, write a check for my health insurance and take him to the doctor? Am I saying that's bad? No. It's not bad. It's a blessing that we have that ability in this country. But am I trusting in my riches or am I trusting in my God? Is my heart crowded because of all my stuff? Because all the stuff I want. I got a wanting heart. I want stuff. I like stuff. When my stuff gets old, I have a garage sale and get rid of my stuff and get, so I can get more stuff. Is <laughs> my heart crowded. It's my heart crowded because of, of the riches that I have. Listen, the scripture goes on to tell us this. The scripture goes on to say, Not only to not trust in the uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us Richly, all things to enjoy. You need to have that. Don't just hear what I'm saying and saying, oh, Jackie was preaching about how bad it is to be rich. It doesn't say that. It says that our God in heaven gives to us richly all things to enjoy. How many things is all things? All things. But he doesn't give us all things so that we put our trust in our stuff. Is my heart too crowded for God? Does He have the high priority in my life? He says in verse 18 of 1 Timothy chapter 6, Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give and willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold of eternal life. Jesus, when the rich young ruler came to him, we all know the story, right? The rich young ruler says, Lord, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus, of course, gives him the same answer you and I would give him if somebody asked us that question, right? Well, that's not exactly what Jesus said to him. Jesus said, you know what is written. And the young man said, well, I've done all those things since my birth. So, obviously, he's got a problem with lying. But he also has another problem. Jesus says, well, then one thing you lack, take All your earthly goods. Sell them. Give them to the poor. Come and follow me. And you will have riches in eternal life. And the young man went away sorrowful because he had a lot of stuff. And his heart was crowded. Was there room for Jesus? I don't know. He doesn't tell us. Jesus goes on to say, man, it is so hard for a rich person to come to eternal life. And the disciples said, well, if a rich person can't be saved, who can be saved? And I thank God that Jesus goes on. He says, with men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. And when we look at these four hearts, there's not one of these hearts that God cannot break through. This heart has a problem, priorities. It's got a problem with its stuff, its possessions, the things that it has. Is this heart too crowded? The third problem it has is with pleasure. That's what Luke tells us in Luke 8, 14. Luke says part of the things that were crowding out this heart was this desire for pleasure. I mean, is there something else that defines our society better than that? Priorities, possessions, and pleasures. That's the crowded heart. That's the crowded heart. And that last phrase has become unfruitful. Does that mean it was fruitful once? Probably not. Probably not. I believe what it means is when every heart hears the word and in some way receives it, there's an opportunity in every heart for fruitfulness. In every one of them, there's an opportunity for fruitfulness. But in the first heart, the devil snatches it away because the heart's hard and it doesn't get any depth. In the second heart, we see that the, the, the immaturity, when the, when the difficult times come, it causes them to quit, snatches that that opportunity way there's no fruitfulness there In the third heart we see it's so crowded it chokes out what the seed would become in the life there's opportunity for fruitfulness anytime we receive the word of god anytime is your heart open is your heart hard your heart immature thinking that life is just going to get better because I asked Jesus to be a part of my life as I committed myself to Him. But listen, there's a fourth heart. The fourth heart, it says, is He who received the, the seed on good ground. That word good literally means beautiful. Beautiful ground. It's he who hears the word and understands it. Remember, that's that concept. Who hears it and has a desire to receive that which the word has. And he indeed bears fruit. Some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty-fold. What do we know about this heart? We know that this heart is ready to receive what God has. Eyes are opened, ears are open to what God has to say. This soil is fruitful. This soil is fruitful, and not only that, it, it varies in its fruit. Everybody doesn't have the same kind of fruitfulness in their life. That's what he's saying. Not every person who's a believer who's fully committed to the God will have the same kind of fruitfulness, but they will all have fruitfulness. They will bring forth more fruit than the seed that was planted. We plant one seed, and if only one little stem of wheat comes up, how many seeds are in that? A lot more than the one we planted, right? You don't have to count them, it's okay. A lot more than what we planted. There's going to be fruitfulness. It's going to be very fruitfulness, but there's going to be fruitfulness. There's going to be fruitfulness in what God does. And there's going to be fruitfulness in our life if we recognize that my heart needs to be open, not crowded. Can't fill it with all the things of this world and with Jesus too. Can't do it. He's got to have that top priority. And I need to realize a wealthy man is not wealthy because of the stuff he has. A wealthy man is wealthy because he needs the least. And I need the least when I have Jesus Christ. When I have total commitment to Him. When my heart is given over to Him. Can we do something? Can we do something about the word that we hear? Well, James said it this way, to be the kind of hearer that God wants us to be. He said, don't be hearers only, those who hear the sound. But what? Doers also. Who do something about it. Listen, we're going to close. I'm sorry, Jackie speaks too long. But before we close, I need you guys to flip over to Ruth with me. Because we've been talking today about total commitment. Total, utter, complete commitment. What does that mean? To not be a hearer only, but a doer also. One who has made a commitment to God. Not one whose seed was pulled away. Not one who quit. Not one whose heart was so crowded that Jesus couldn't get a hold of it. But one who's totally committed. And I just want you to hear the words of Ruth. See, Ruth is, is walking with Naomi. I don't want to get into the whole story. It's, it's important. But if you want to hear the whole story, come Wednesday. We're studying Ruth. But the idea is, Naomi, who has lived a life away from what God wanted her to do, is going back to the Lord, and she's lost everything, and she's got two daughter-in-laws whose husbands have died, and, and, and Naomi's husband died, and they're all going back, and you, you meet Orpa. Orpa means uh, immature, young one. And Orpa, she kisses Naomi and she leaves. She's got emotion and no devotion. So she goes back home. It's OK. Naomi told her to do that. But Naomi also told Ruth to do that. Ruth made a commitment. I want you to hear the words of Ruth's commitment. In chapter 1, verse 16. Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave you, or to turn back from following after you. For where you go, I will go where you lodge. I will lodge your people are my people, your God, my God, where you die. I will die. And there I will be buried. And the Lord do to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. That's total commitment. Wherever you go, I go. Where you stay, I stay. Your people, the people of God, they will be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, what breaks your heart will break my heart. What hurts you will hurt me because I am totally committed to you no matter what. That is a heart with good soil. That's the heart of fruitfulness. That needs to be our heart. It needs to be our heart if our heart's something else, repent. Repent. And make that commitment. Make your heart fruitful. Amen? Amen. Why not you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just are amazed by the power of your word, the ability of the word of God to reach into our life and to divide between the thoughts and the intents of our heart, to provoke me to say, there are four soils and only one is good Provoke me to to ask the question, to search my heart, to say, God, which of these soils is me? Where am I? Because I want to be a part of the kingdom. I want to go where you go. I want to live where you tell me to live. I want to do what you tell me to do. I don't ever want to quit. I don't ever want to stop. And I don't ever want to make a priority in my life that puts you somewhere other than first. I don't want to be chained to my possessions. (coughs) I want to use my possessions for your kingdom. I don't want to be chained to the pleasures Of this world. And the passing pleasure of sin. I would rather happily suffer affliction. With the people of God. Than to dwell. In the palace of wickedness. Lord. I I want. To live a life. To be a person. Who's fruitful because. Not because I'm. Great or because I'm strong. But only because I'm committed to you. That's it. That's all that's required. And when I say I believe in Jesus Christ. doesn't mean I believe he exists. It means I believe. I believe what he said was true. When he spoke in John and said. Unless you believe that I am eternal God. You will die in your sins. That I believe it's true. That he God in the flesh came and lived a perfect, sinless life to become my sin sacrifice. To pay the price for my failures. So that I could receive a gift that He freely offers to me and all I need to do is make a commitment to Him and trust myself to Him. But I don't want to just make a verbal lip service. It needs to be from my heart everything that is within me. I want you, God. God, let that be the heart that we, your people, have. God, do a work in us today. Cause us to look within ourselves. Cause us to see. And if there be any wicked way, Lord, you declare, all we have to do is confess it. Commit ourselves to you. Make that right choice. I'm not saying we've lost our salvation. Sometimes I wonder if we ever really had it. But once we have it, we're yours forever. You are not ashamed to be called by my name. I am the God of Jackie, the God of Jacob, the God of Abraham and of Isaac. I'm not the God of the dead, but of the living You're not ashamed of us, so we will not be ashamed of you. Lord, it's our prayer we make that, that our commitment to you is real, total, and lasting. And as we understand the truth of this parable, we know who is a part of the kingdom, who is the family of God. It's the heart that has the right priorities. It's the heart that's committed. Then we know what to do next as your word lays it out for us. God, I pray that you would move among us, your people, this morning. By the power of your spirit, draw us into total commitment, utter and complete abandon for you. God, I pray you do that work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close with a word of worship. And as we're closing, I want to invite the prayer counselors to move around the room and and find themselves a a place where anybody, if you have something going on in your heart or something you you need to come up and you need to pray or you need to talk to somebody, I want to encourage you to do that. The second thing I, I want to let you know is after immediately following the service, right after service, we're going to go Uh, over in the Koinonia, but as we do, hopefully, George, you're going to be here for Koinonia, right? You and Noel? George and Noel are leaving us. And uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that that's not God's decision, but you know, I'll reserve that opinion. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) Unfortunately, the Lord has taken him away from us, but we want to lay hands and pray for him and and Noel. So it's another good reason to come to Koinonia, because we're going to... As a body, lay hands on him and pray for him. Pray God's blessing and covering upon him. So I encourage you to come be a part of that with us. God bless you guys. Go in peace.